We are on chapter 7, uh, point number 5, so that's page 31. And I will um, pray for it. So page 31 there, and we'll start at point number 5, the very last one on that page there. Father in heaven, thank you for this beautiful day. We thank you for the birth of Jesus and for the gift of righteousness that you gave to us in him. We pray that you would bless us now as we talk about these important truths that you have revealed to us in the pages of your holy word. Help us understand these things better to grow in grace this day. And we thank you for speaking to us and giving us the truth in scripture and in the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. All right, we talked about the covenant theology here. And there are two primary covenants given to us in Scripture. There's the covenant of works and the covenant of grace. And it's very important that you know the covenant of works is not a gracious covenant. Okay? It required works. That's why it's called the covenant of works. Right? It's been kind of an odd phenomenon in my lifetime. When I got to seminary, we had to read theologians and different churchmen who said that you know, there, there's grace in the covenant of works. I remember thinking, no, there's not. Why, why would Adam, before he sins, need grace? And then people will say things like, well, Adam still needed strengthening from God. He, he still needed some help from God. And, and I've pointed out to, to people, that's providence. Okay, that's providence, not grace. So yeah, Adam, Adam needs God's power to exist, just like butterflies need God's power to exist. But that's not grace. Okay, grace is God's response to sin. All right, so watch out for that. Like, you'll, you'll hear that. People will say that if Adam, anything Adam would have achieved in that covenant would have been by grace through faith. No, it wouldn't have. Adam doesn't need grace before he sins. And if, if Adam had withstood the temptation, he would have earned the right to eat from the tree of life. Okay? Now, Jesus Christ enters into that broken covenant of works, right? And he achieves what it required. What, where the first Adam failed, the second Adam succeeds. He's tempted in every way that Adam was tempted, but he doesn't succumb to it. And he obeys perfectly. Now, think about, if you say that Adam's um, reward of eternal life would have been given to him as a gracious gift if he had obeyed God, then are, are we saying that Jesus was given, like, that he obeyed and it was a gift of grace or something? It doesn't make any sense. Okay, so the, these two covenants, the covenant of works, covenant of grace, are extremely important that we get these right. There is no grace in the covenant of works. Okay, and I, I keep having to say that to people. I've, I've had to argue about this with, with other Reformed ministers who have, have sat there and said, no, 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 it, it, anything Adam would have gotten would have been by grace. Adam doesn't need grace yet. He hasn't fallen into sin. He's created upright and righteous. He had the ability to keep God's law and God's commandment, and he doesn't do it. Once he falls into sin, now he's deprived himself of his original righteousness. Now he's enslaved to sin. Now God's got to give us grace in order to save us, right? But if you start saying that grace operates everywhere, both before and after the fall, in effect, you'll end up saying that there's grace nowhere. And in fact, works everywhere. And that's exactly what's, what's been happening. People say, no, 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 we're, we're saved by the fruits of our faith, or we're saved by the good works we do as Christians, and that's still salvation by grace. And we're thinking... Like, that's, no, there's something seriously wrong with that. Covenant of works, covenant of grace. you got to keep these clear in your mind. One of my favorite theologians, I haven't read his, his whole huge, massive um, four-volume systematic theology. It's called The Christian's Reasonable Service. Have you guys ever seen that massive thing? It's really good. 
this stuff, uh, Wilhelmus Abrakel. Hmm. He, he is an author who's writing in the 1700s. <clears throat> he has a section in there on the Covenant of Works, and it's unbelievable how prophetic it is. Because he says, if you make an error here, he's writing in the 1700s, if you make an error here, and you think that grace is part of this, you will destroy the gospel eventually. And we've seen that happen over and over and over again with the federal vision, with all that stuff. They've all said, no, Adam, Adam lived by grace, lived by grace. And Abrakel, 300 years ago, said, if you make a mistake here, it's going to trickle down and affect the rest of your theology. And you're going to eventually get rid of the idea that Christ's righteousness is what gets us into heaven. And he is exactly correct. So when you read chapter 7 here, these are not small little fine print theological details. The covenant of works is not a gracious covenant. The covenant of grace is a gracious covenant. Don't you think that's pretty obvious by, by what we call them? Covenant of works, covenant of grace? Like, why would you say the covenant of works is gracious? With um, Doug Wilson and the Federal Vision. Uh-huh. And um, he, pro- he doesn't call it Federal Vision now. And he says he's changed on his position, but he really hasn't. No, he's not changed anything. You know, how can, how come there are so many, I think Costihan called Josh Weiss out on him allowing cross politics, which is to G3, and how can he? They're at G3 this year? Yeah, they are. I've said much. Um, how, can, how can we be unevenly yoked with someone that thinks justification is wrought by what Doug Wilson says? That's a, I don't know. That's a very touchy thing. Kind of like John Piper is touchy, right? Because they're great reformed faith men, right? And they don't want to diss anybody of the reformed faith because he did get a lot of things right which are great but I, I think it's more unfortunately of a, an embarrassment issue rather than a you know how God gave us the ten commandments there's actually there's apparently there's an eleventh one and the, <laughs> and, the, and the eleventh one is you shall not ever criticize yeah or you shall not ever criticize someone that we think is good yeah and, and the thing is the scriptures everywhere warn us that this kind of false teaching will arise from inside the church. That what Paul, Paul told the Ephesian elders, guys, after I leave, savage wolves will come in, not sparing the flock, and they will arise and say perverse things to draw the disciples away after them. Why do we think that doesn't happen anymore? It, it happens all the time. So I'll, always remember, if you guys, if you want to go to heaven, and I, I tell people this all the time, if you want to go to heaven, you need to rely on what Christ has done and nothing that you do. Okay, please do that. Like all the different ways that's being denied, you need to to push those aside. You keep your hope on Christ alone and nothing but him because that's the key to getting into heaven. Okay. And man naturally wants laws. Man naturally wants to follow A, B, C, D, E. You know what I mean? Man naturally wants to say, okay, I'm doing this, 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 and this, and this is my salvation. Not because... They want it to be their salvation, but because we're naturally prone to that, right? Like we're doing all these things, and we're more spiritual, we're loving God, but mm-hmm. we get too caught up in that, and it turns into legalism. Yeah. I mean, I, as I mean, I with I mean, with where I'm at now, I'm more discerning than when I was a new believer. Mm-hmm. But I have 
when I talk to someone like you or someone who is a pastor or well-known, and I challenge how can you be unevenly yoked with someone? Because if I come see you, I can understand leading other works to be able to understand other position. But if I'm a new, when I come, I mean, when I've talked with you all in the library, I've looked to see what's in the library. Whether it's you or anyone else, I, I look to see what is on your shelf. And I want to know what you're reading. If you're reading something from Doug Wilson, why are you reading something from Doug Wilson? Do you believe what he's teaching? And if you do, that to me I see as the it's a Christian liberty, but I see it as a stumbling block, especially for new believers wanting to be able to read stuff to grow in their walk with the Lord. Yeah. What, as someone, as I think of new believers, would I want them to be reading Doug Wilson? No. I'm just saying from my point of view. So I struggle with those that I think should be very discerning as to not associate Are, are with there them. books by him in our library? Well, I, I haven't seen okay. any there. But I are mean, there some? Hey, he contributed to some. Oh, and John okay. Popper contributed to some. Oh, okay. but, but I'm, I'm just online. using that as an example because right. if I... I don't think there's... I, I don't know there are, but it's like... Um, and I have no problem with those that are in leadership to read the stuff to be able mm -hmm. to defend it. Mm -hmm. But I think there needs to be um, caution with respect to what people see. Sure. I, I don't know, because I guess it's a, to me, I see it as a stumbling block. Yeah. I have a whole bookshelf in my library of, of her, it's my heretical garbage bookshelf. Uh -huh. So I've got a lot of, of books by that. I have a whole atheist bookshelf too, but books yeah. by atheists too. If you run into anything that has John Popper's, I'll keep, they actually have one that's just a list of great papers written that are barely scripturally driven on biblical manhood and womanhood and how that's to work out and things like that. And John Popper and Tim Keller contributed to it. But you also have to understand that a lot of the books in our library were donated by Larry Ball, which was the old pastor. But there weren't all these errors and issues when this happened. This has changed. There's a lot of new trends going on now. Uh -huh. So, yeah, it's, it's sad to see all that. But, but as far as discernment, I, I found it very kind of complicated, but something I really want to do. Patrick probably gets tired of all my emails and text message questions, but I actually gave him a book to look through because I really want to do it, but I'm kind of afraid because of the archbishops and bishops, and I don't remember which ones were good and bad yeah. from back in the day when it was written, right? So anyway... Yeah, and I've looked through some of it, not not the whole thing, but what's in it is actually pretty good. The well, daily I, worship stuff. I yeah. happen to like the Archbishop of Canterbury, Justin Mulby. Now that doesn't mean I take my theology from him, but he's right. got some pretty good things. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and that's that's the goal of pastoral ministry is to is to shepherd people and help them be discerning. Yeah. So you can take the good and discard yeah. the bad. Like I have no doubt. I mean, Piper did write things about like 
the Journal of Biblical Manhood and Womanhood that were good. Yeah, yes, that's and what I'm talking about. That's it. Yeah, and I've I've read stuff by him where he's he's right on the money on stuff like that. Doug yeah. Wilson the same way. Stuff he says about marriage and so not not everything he says about marriage, but some things he says about marriage and stuff like that I think are, are pretty good. I, I read a lot of but his. a blind but a blind squirrel can find a nut every once. That's in a while. very true. That's why we you know the stuff that we put on the bookshelves though is stuff that you know I would recommend. Without hesitation, that you're going to get good stuff from from yeah. these guys. So, and, and that's the thing. People are like, well, couldn't we read them for this or the other thing? There's plenty of good writers who are, who also understand the gospel that have yeah. addressed these issues that are, are just as good. So, yeah, I've actually been putting out. I've got um, I think seven books on Amazon now that I I wrote myself. Uh-huh. What? So yeah, I've been putting them out there, like editing sermons. Like I've been spending forever doing that because people are like, well, if you have a problem with everybody, why don't you? write some stuff yourself. I'm like, okay, fine. I will. So they're out there. <laughs> Did not yeah. know that. That's yeah. awesome. Yeah, so check them out, man. Um, on Kindle, there, there's some on Kindle. Some are just individual sermons, but there's two that are long. One's 400 pages long. So that was like, that's a forever. But <laughs> anyway. Okay, point number five. This, this covenant, notice we're talking about the covenant of grace, was differently administered in the time of the law and in the time of the gospel. Under the law, it was administered by promises, prophecies, sacrifices, circumcision, the Paschal Lamb, that means the Passover Lamb, and other types and ordinances delivered to the people of the Jews, all for signifying Christ to come, which were for that time sufficient and efficacious through the operation of the Spirit to instruct and build up the elect in faith in the promised Messiah, by whom they had full remission of sins and eternal salvation, and is called the Old Testament. Okay, so what's very important here, the thing that that they really do a great job of pointing out is there's only one covenant of grace, okay? And it's not covenant of works, Old Testament, covenant of grace, New Testament. The covenant of works and the covenant of grace go side by side through both testaments together, okay? So the people in the Old Testament, how were they saved? They were saved by looking forward to the coming of Christ. They were saved by, they knew one day that Jesus would come, that the Messiah, the Christ would come, and that he would bring them salvation. And they didn't know nearly as much about him as we do, but that's what their hope was in. That's what all that was supposed to teach them about. So when, like, circumcision and the feasts and festivals, the tabernacle, when they sacrificed that Passover lamb, that was God's way of showing them how serious their sin was. Okay, and they had to do that every year. I mean, every year they had to take a, a, a blemish-free lamb. You know, the whole family would be there for this. Imagine, you know, the little little boys and girls watching, you know, Fluffy the sheep having his throat cut and blood everywhere and, and just thinking, why do we have to do this? And it was for them to see, this is how serious your sin is. And that's why when Jesus comes along, when he first appears on the scene, what does John the Baptist say about him? Behold, the Lamb of God, the, Lamb of God like the real one. Here's what all those Passover lambs were pointing forward to okay and jesus himself said that abraham was looking forward to seeing his day in john eight fifty six, he said that he told his opponents at the feast of tabernacles that they were arguing back and forth and they're like you're not even 50 years old you've seen abraham and he, he said before abraham was i am and he said abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day so we know what was abraham looking forward to the promise of god the messiah the savior Okay? And that's why Jesus told his Jewish opponents, you guys don't believe the Old Testament. You guys say you do. You guys say you believe in Moses and you, you know all the prophets and you know the law, but you don't understand that they all point forward to me. And if you really did believe Moses and you really believe the prophets, you would believe in me because they were, they're all about me. Okay? So there's one covenant of grace. They were justified by faith in, alone, not by their works, not by keeping the law, just like we are. 
So they were looking forward to the coming of Christ. We have the privilege of having the rest of divine revelation in the New Testament. We look back to the coming of Christ. Okay, so then it gets to point number six. Under the gospel, when Christ, the substance, was exhibited, the ordinances in which this covenant is dispensed are the preaching of the word and the administration of the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper, which, though fewer in number and administered with more simplicity and less outward glory, yet in them it is held forth in more fullness, evidence, and spiritual efficacy to all nations, both Jews and Gentiles, and is called the New Testament. There are not, therefore, two covenants of grace differing in substance, but one and the same under various dispensations. Okay, so people in the Old Testament were not saved by keeping the law. No, no one ever has been saved by keeping the law. In fact, we know from the New Testament, what's one of the main reasons God gave us the law? To show us our sin. It was to show Israel their sin. Isn't that amazing? The very thing. I'm sorry? And to show his holiness. And to show yeah, how holy he is, how righteous he is. It's amazing to think that that gift that God gave them, his law, the Pharisees thought, we can do that. And we'll, we'll keep it and, and save ourselves. And, and ever since then, when Paul preached uh, the gospel all the way throughout the, the Mediterranean world and planted all those churches, they started thinking the same thing. We can keep the law too. And that's why Paul wrote Galatians. No, you can't. The law was given to show you your need for an imputed righteousness, for the righteousness of Jesus Christ to save you. I, I don't need you to go into in-depth, but in general, overall, because my brain is not working. Um but one and the same under various dispensations. What yes. Dispensations mean again? The, the word the word dispensation is an English translation of the Greek word oikoinomia, where we get the word economy, and it simply means house law or stewardship. What what okay. what what it means is, under the Old Testament, that is a dispensation of the one covenant of grace. It doesn't mean we're dispensationalists, right? Okay, that's what I was thinking. Okay, dispensational lists think what that there was like seven different ways of salvation throughout world history, okay? And like in the Old Testament, people were saved by the law, but not very many people were getting saved that way, so God, thankfully, we're born during the age of grace, so we just, we don't have to do anything. We can just believe in Jesus. That's not it at all. There's one covenant of grace, and it's administered in different ways throughout history. That's what those dispensations are, okay? All right, all right, point, or chapter eight of Christ the Mediator. It pleased God in his eternal purpose to choose and ordain the Lord Jesus his only begotten son, to be the mediator between God and man, the prophet, priest, and king, the head and savior of his church, the heir of all things, and judge of the world, unto whom he did from all eternity give a people to be his seed, and to be by him in time redeemed, called, justified, sanctified, and glorified. Okay, so there you go. There, there's, there's the one who's going to achieve that covenant of grace. And isn't that glorious? I think... Once you get that point through your skull and like get it, okay, Christ is the one who does all this. All, what I do to go to heaven, I rest on that, on what he did over there. That's why all the smudging of the lines and trying to turn it into my change, my transformation is laughably false to me. Because it's robbing Jesus of what he came to do. He's the one who saves us. He's the one who by his righteousness gets us into heaven. And he gets all the glory for it. That's why all of the all of the weirdness that's going on today, I just I, it blows my mind that it doesn't upset people Christians more than it does. Like you guys are trampling on the sufficiency of what Jesus Christ did. God gave him the church before the foundation of the world, and he came into the world and saved them. It's that simple. 
remember listening to a debate years ago on is it possible to lose your salvation? And uh, James White was uh, debating, uh, I forget, it was a, I think it was a Roman Catholic apologist. And he started out his opening statement. His opening paragraph was a quotation from some theologian. And that was the end of the debate. After he read that quote, I never thought of it like that. I was like, wow. He said, he, the quotation says something just like this. Jesus Christ is accountable to his father for the salvation of every person chosen in him before the foundation of the world. And therefore, we need not doubt that he will employ all the powers of his Godhead to infallibly and perfectly secure their salvation. And so the only way that someone could be a true Christian and lose their salvation is if Jesus Christ fails to do his Father's will. I was like, stop the tape. I was like, yeah. Never thought of it like that before. Too man-centered in my thinking. The, The salvation of the church is about the glory of God. It's about the glory of God's grace. And so that's why you got to make sure you let, let Jesus do all the saving and make sure that you always trust only in him for your salvation. Okay. All right. Point number two, the son of God, the second person in the Trinity being very and eternal God of one substance and equal with the father did when the fullness of time was come, take upon him man's nature with all the essential properties and common infirmities thereof yet without sin. So think about that for a moment. That, to me, that is just mind-blowing. Jesus takes upon himself a full human nature. He could get, he could like fall and skin his knee. He, he probably got bit by mosquitoes. He probably got colds and sore throats and headaches. And I mean, he, he had all the infirmities and was subject to death too. I mean, we, he died and he felt physical pain and emotional heartache and everything. So that's just is incredible to think of. God the Son added a fully human nature to himself in the incarnation when he was here he didn't glow i always thought if you could see jesus like when you see those those horrible medieval paintings he, his head is always glowing or there's like a big halo around and it he just looked like a normal person he just he just looked like any other any other person but, that you would have seen unless because i had listened this is probably two or three years back i listened to someone do a commentary I don't know if it was the London Baptist Confessional Faith of the Westminster. And they were, you know, talking about how Christ was clothed with humanity. If he wasn't clothed with humanity, would we have been able to look upon him in all his glory? No, it would have killed us. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, because when they yeah. said that, that's mm-hmm. something that really struck with me without him being clothed in his yeah. humanity. I mean, how. See, yeah, that's that's why that episode in Jesus's ministry, the Transfiguration, is just one of those incredible moments where it's like the glory of God is allowed to shine forth just for a few moments. Remember that, and Moses and Elijah appear by him, and he's like, just the glory of God is shining forth, and Peter is like losing his mind because of like, he's seeing this. Yeah, yeah. Well, let's build three tents: one for you, one for you, one for you. Yeah. Uh, in Luke's gospel, Luke's, Luke uh, is the only one who adds he did not understand what he was saying. Because <laughs> he was just like in shock, like, wow, you know. Yeah, but the glory of God is veiled in the, in the humanity and in the humiliation of, of Christ. Yeah. But the next time he comes back, and when he comes back the next time, it's not going to be in humiliation. It's, it's going to be um, the way the book of Revelation describes it and the way that Scripture speaks of it in flaming fire with his arrows aimed at the hearts of the wicked and the ungodly and those who, who love not the gospel and don't obey the gospel. You think, man, 
it's not coming veiled in, in a manger next time. So can't, he came to save. Remember his disciples, can we call down fire on, on this village since they rejected us? He's like, no, I didn't come to destroy people. Like, eventually I will. Well, eventually I'm coming to do that, but not now. I came this time to save people. And that's what, I'm, what he's been doing ever since, is saving people and redeeming people. My biggest problem with the whole rapture thing, me and my brother-in-law were talking about the other day, and he's trying to convince me. I'm like, but when Jesus comes back, every eye shall see him, every knee yeah, right. shall bow. And he was like, but he comes secretly. And, and I'm like, how does Jesus secretly come back? I don't yeah. get that. Yeah. Yeah, that, I remember that was one of the arguments that made me get rid of that rapture, some of that rapture theology because they, they try to substantiate it from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 mm-hmm. where it says, and they shall be caught up in the air. But, the, but it says, and he shall descend with the shout of an archangel and the trumpet call of God. I remember reading that yes. going, that doesn't sound secret to me. Exactly. Yeah, it sounds like nobody's going to miss it. When, yeah. when he comes back. Plus the dead are raised. You have the resurrection of the dead when he comes back. So yeah, that's just not, not the case. Yeah, When he comes back, that's it. It's over. Everything ends then. It's not the beginning of seven years of this or a thousand years of that. When he comes back, that's the end of history. So, okay. Um, yeah, I started preaching, sorry. All right, so oh, here we go, here we go. Yet without sin, being conceived by the power of the Holy Ghost in the womb of the Virgin Mary of her substance... So that two whole, perfect, and distinct natures, the Godhead and the manhood, were inseparably joined together in one person without conversion, composition, or confusion. You guys have any idea historically where they're getting that, those three words? Without conversion, composition, or confusion? That's from the Council of Chalcedon in 451. 451 AD, the Council of Chalcedon, they confess the full humanity of Christ and the full deity of Christ, and they use that phrase. The two natures are joined together. They said, without conversion, composition, or confusion, meaning that the, the humanity and the divinity are not mingled together at all. Like, they're not mixed together. Okay? They are distinct, but united in the one person. Okay? And that's, why, why is that so important? That when you think about Jesus, you always need to think he is fully human. And he's fully God. And the, the deity does not mingle with the, the humanity and the humanity doesn't mix together with the deity. Why is it so important that they're distinct natures? To be able to represent both parties adequately. Exactly correct. If he is something other than human, if his human nature ceases to be what my human nature is, he can't be my substitute. Right? If, if the deity like was mingled together with the humanity, he wouldn't be able to save me because he wouldn't be human anymore. Okay, and there isn't, that's actually an ancient heresy called monophysitism, the, the idea that Christ has one nature, that the deity, the humanity are mixed together in one new nature. And the ancient church condemned that and said, no, that's definitely wrong. Because what happens when, he, when he's scourged? He bleeds. When he's nailed to the cross, he dies. If he's something other than human, that wouldn't have happened. He gets thirsty. He eats food. He sleeps. Um, he's clearly human. And if he okay. didn't have human nature, of course he's going to be sinless. Right, right. Okay, let's, let's press on here. Um, which person is very God and very man, yet one Christ, the only mediator between God and man? Okay? Now, if you want to really impress your friends and confound your enemies, 
there, there's another name for that that the ancient church um, used the, the phrase hypostatic union. The, the Greek word hypostasios means nature. So the hypostatic union is the union of the two natures. The hypostatic union is the union of the humanity and the divinity in the one person. So I remember um, learning that like long ago, the hypostatic union. That I sounds cool. I think that was in our, or we did a Sunday school at one point uh, on Christology. Mm-hmm. I think that was me. Yeah, the hypostatic union. It's a very important doctrine, and it comes right out of Hebrews 1, verse 3, where it says that he is the exact representation of his nature. It uses the word hypostasios. He says, okay, so Christ has the, the same nature as God, and he's fully human too. So there's two natures. There's two hypostasioi that are united in the one person. Okay, so that's cool. Remember the word, can you say the word hypostasios? Hypostasios. That's a five-syllable word, man. Hypostasios. I remember seeing that, like learning, man, the, the Athanasian Creed and those ancient creeds, they looked at so many texts of scripture and they said, it's right there. I thought, yeah, the word hypostasios is, is used to describe the nature of Christ in Hebrews 1.3. That's what the Athanasian Creed and the Nicene Creed is based on, is those guys that in the early church, they hammered out the stuff. They really looked carefully at the scriptures and were like, okay, he, he's fully God. We see it so clearly. And he's also fully man. And you can't mix the two natures together. They've got to be distinct but united in the one person. And that's okay. what I love about the Westminster It's obviously not scripture, and it doesn't right. take place. But... Mm-hmm. When I'm thinking about something, I have a question about what I'm reading. I can totally go to this, yes. get the scripture back up, and I'm like, okay, mm-hmm. it makes sense. I yeah. love it. They, these guys, like, people are like, you guys are so into this confession. They learned from the battles that already had taken place in the church history. There okay, so, how many yeah. men was it that created? Like 150? 123. There are okay, 123 guys. So 123 fallen men. Mm-hmm. Looking at scripture that people interpret differently mm-hmm. and came up yeah. as complete union yep. with these points, these many, like, is that not a miracle in itself? It's a testimony to the clarity of scripture. Exactly. Yeah. When people say yes. scripture is so hard to understand, I'm like, yeah, it's, have you read the confessions and creeds? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. If you really practice sola scriptura, if you really really study scripture and these guys really tried to understand church history and the history of Christian thought and the Reformation had just happened the previous century. They learned from Luther and Calvin and their successors and like all the hard work that they did and they, they crystallized it here. And it is amazing because it took them five and a half years to write all this. That's but not they, that bad for 120 some men to I know. agree on everything yeah. in here. When every single one of them is a scholar and knows yes. and knows the original languages and they yes. all know church history. And I've read so many books about like some of the debates they had. I mean, yes. these guys would stand up and go on for, they would talk and talk and talk. And everyone around is writing down everything they're saying and they're like, mm-hmm. they're comparing notes and stuff. But this is what they came up with and to point out. This is what the, the tried and proved and tested faith of God's people has brought us. That, that's why I'm not offended by the term and a lot of people are the Westminster divines. Yeah. Like, a mm-hmm. lot of people are like, how can I? I'm like, can you? <laughs> Hello? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. A divine is just an old, it's an old English way of referring to a theologian. Yeah. Because yeah. I, I have a, I have a master of divinity, it's called. It's, they still call that degree a master of divinity, meaning a master, of, like, kind of a master in theology, in Bible. So... Okay, uh, point number three there on page 37. 
The Lord Jesus, in his human nature, thus united to the divine, was sanctified and anointed with the Holy Spirit above measure, having in him all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, in whom it pleased the Father that all fullness should dwell, to the end that, being holy, harmless, undefiled, and full of grace and truth, he might be thoroughly furnished to execute the office of a mediator and surety. Do you guys know what the word surety means? The way it's being used there? A surety is a legal guarantor. Okay, remember when, um, when uh, Israel's, Jacob's sons all come back from Egypt and they're like, this guy we met wants us to bring Benjamin with, back with us. And Jacob's like, what? Why did you guys tell him you have a younger brother? And they're like, look, he, he questioned us. They still have no idea it's Joseph and that Joseph recognizes them. But Judah says, look, dad, I will be surety for Benjamin. In other words, I will take legal responsibility for bringing him back safe to you. Okay? And a surety is someone who is a, a guarantor that something will, will happen. Jesus is the surety of our salvation because he takes the legal responsibility on himself for it. Okay? He is the surety of the better covenant. And he steps in there and says, Lord, to his father, I will make sure every single one of these that you've given me gets to heaven. I am surety for it. Okay? Isn't that cool? That comes right out of Hebrews 7.22. He has become the surety of a better covenant. So that's, that's where they're getting that term. It's the fact is it cited there in, uh, in the footnote. Let's see, surety, T, letter T. X, Hebrews, yeah, see it? It's Hebrews 7.22. By so much was Jesus made a surety of a better covenant, the legal guarantor of it. Okay. Which office he took not unto himself, but was thereunto called by his father, who put all power and judgment into his hand and gave him commandment to execute the same. Okay, so he was appointed to this office by his father and he goes and, and does it. He goes and, and saves his people. He's the surety for them. Okay, point number four. <clears throat> this office the, the Lord Jesus did most willingly undertake, which that he might discharge, he was made under the law and did perfectly fulfill it endured most grievous torments immediately in his soul and most painful sufferings in his body was crucified and died was buried and remained under the power of death yet saw no corruption on the third day he rose arose from the dead with the same body in which he suffered with which also he ascended into heaven and there sitteth at the right hand of his father making intercession and shall return to judge men and angels at the end of the world Okay, so what I just read to you there, that is how our salvation is accomplished. Okay, it has nothing to do with any kind of subjective change in me, any kind of transformation in me, any kind of fruit that God bears in my life and my sanctification. This, what I just described to you, his suffering, his uh, death on the cross, this is what achieves our salvation. This is what does it. Okay, it's really weird. Who, who would ever have thought, well, I guess... It, we should always know we have to emphasize that because, like, like you said, men are always trying to find a way to insert themselves into the equation. But this is what does it here, is his suffering, <clears throat> what he does there. I mean, look at that description. He endured most grievous torments immediately in his soul. But why did he do that? So that we wouldn't have to. And, he, and most painful sufferings in his body was crucified and died, was buried, and remained under the power of death, yet saw no corruption. And the third day he rose again from the dead. I love that. They add, with the same body in which he suffered. Okay, they're, they're trying to make sure people know it wasn't some kind of a ghost or a phantom or anything. 
the, the, the cells and the matter of, of which his body was made is what God brought back to life. The same body. I'm sorry? He ate. That's right, in front of them. Because even they didn't think that it was really him. Like when what Thomas was touching him, mm-hmm. he ate. Physically ate, yeah. not a ghost. Nothing fell out. Yeah. Isn't that amazing? Like, that he, they, they're looking at him, and they still are struggling to really believe that it's him. I would do. I, I, so would I. <laughs> I'd be like, you're dead, man. Like, how can you be standing there? Yeah. Okay, point five. The Lord Jesus, by his perfect obedience and sacrifice of himself, which he, through the eternal spirit, once offered up unto God, hath fully satisfied the justice of his father. You hear that? <laughs> That's why Paul says so triumphantly in Romans 8, 33, who will bring a charge against God's elect? Well, because of this. Justice has already been answered. It's been satisfied. It's gone forever. So he has fully satisfied the justice of his father and purchased not only reconciliation, but an everlasting inheritance in the kingdom of heaven for all those whom the father hath given unto him. It just gives me the chills to read that. (laughs) Because it's just the most glorious thing that a human mind could ever know is that. Yep, he did it. He purchased it. So, all right, point number six. Although the work of redemption was not actually wrought by Christ till after his incarnation, this is important here, yet the virtue, efficacy, and benefits thereof were communicated unto the elect in all ages, successively from the beginning of the world, and by those promises, type sacrifices, wherein he was revealed and signified to be the seed of the woman which should bruise the serpent's head, and the lamb slain from the beginning of the world, <clears throat> being yesterday and today the same and forever. Okay, so Adam and Eve and Enoch and Noah and um, Abram and uh, Isaac, Jacob and Israel and the prophets, they knew about this. I always think, you know, what exactly, I used to read the Old Testament after I became reformed and thought, what exactly did Enoch, well, remember Enoch? Well, he's one of two people that did what? Well, he walked with God, but he didn't die. That's right. And who's the other one? Uh, there's two people that are in heaven that didn't die. Isaiah or, um, Elijah. 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 Yes. So there's only two, Enoch and Elijah. And that's weird. I remember when I was preaching through Genesis, reading about Enoch, <clears throat> the Hebrew is really interesting to read. It says, and Enoch walked with God. And then it just says, what? And was not. And he was not. I remember reading it in Hebrew, like, and then he was not. John MacArthur actually Really? And you think, I remember thinking, why did God do that? Why did he do that? He just took the guy straight to heaven when he was at the tender young age of 300. (laughs) Back when everybody else was living to be 900 years old. And it just kind of hit me because he can. That's why I was texting you about if he had the Holy Spirit. Yeah, of course. They did. I was listening to that sermon and I was like, Mm -hmm. he had to. They all did. Yeah. Yeah. Because once Adam falls into sin, the need that everybody has is the same throughout all of history. Like they need to be born again and regenerated just like we do. Okay, it's not like human nature changes after the coming of Christ. Everyone still needs the same thing. We all need to be justified. We need to be adopted. We need to be forgiven. They didn't know as much about it. But when God told Adam and Eve about the seed of the woman that would come one day, I'm sure that um, Abel told that to his children and that Seth told that to his children and their children. They knew about that. They, they knew that one day God is going to send someone who's going to save us from this horrible, this horrible sinful world that we've created. 
Okay, so they, they did know that he was coming, but they didn't know a whole lot about him, but they knew that he was going to be the one that would save them. So, okay, um, we can look at one more paragraph. Point number seven there. <clears throat> Christ, in the work of mediation, acts according to both natures, each nature doing that which is proper to itself, yet by reason of the unity of the person, that which is proper to one nature is sometimes in Scripture attributed to the person denominated by the other. <laughs> Do you guys understand what they're saying here? What they're saying okay. is sometimes that what happens is not attributed to the nature that's doing it, yes. but to the other nature. You got it. Okay, now, that's what they're saying. Now, look at, I'll show you one passage where this happens. Acts twenty twenty-eight. So if you have your Bible, turn to Acts chapter 20, verse 28, and we'll, we'll stop here. I remember reading that long ago going, what on earth is this Theo battle? Like, I don't even know what they're talking about. <clears throat> but actually, this ends up being a really important concept because not only does it help us understand how Scripture talks about Jesus, it also helps us understand the sacraments. Because the same thing happens with the sacraments. God will speak of the sign as if it does what it signifies. Or, or as if it is what it signifies. <clears throat> so look at Acts 20, verse 28. Paul, would you read that for us, please? Acts 20, 28. Yep. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God which he obtained with his own Okay, now think about what, what it says in the very last part there. To shepherd or take care of the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. So it's attributing what Christ did in his humanity to his to deity. That's right. Because the union of the two natures is so close that sometimes what's unique to one nature will be attributed to the other one. Does God have blood? No. Does the divine nature bleed? No. Divine nature is not even made of matter. But God purchased the church with his own blood. And you think, why? Okay, so, so God can speak that way. He's simply emphasizing the union of the two natures there. You can refer to, to God purchasing the church with his own blood. Okay? And it, it's okay as long as you understand they're not mingling the natures together. God does not have blood in his own divine nature. But does that make sense? That's what blood they're talking about. Love, mm-hmm. Which is why Christ had to have blood in his human nature to mm-hmm. give life. For his life to expire. That's right. It's actually technically, like people, you know, the blood itself we talk about the cleansing blood of christ but it's really the the loss of blood is is really about death itself because what was the the uh, penalty for sin death yeah the wages of sin is death when god made the covenant of works and the day you eat of it you will surely not you will surely bleed but you will surely die so it took me a while to get that yeah together the old testament sacrifices yeah and yeah it's the loss of blood is what leads to death, but the real thing is the killing of all those animals because death is what God said was the punishment for sin. So, okay. It's heavy-duty stuff, isn't it? But it's amazing to, to think about all of it and you just think, if you look carefully, look closely at, at Scripture, it is absolutely astounding and glorious and beautiful what God did. Everything, everything that, that I needed my Savior to be, He is. Everything that, that needed to be done so I can go to heaven, He did. And did it perfectly. And did it willingly, lovingly. So it's very important that we protect that, that we protect the sufficiency of what he did to, to save us. All right, you guys have any questions? Cool. All right, well, let's, let's close up here. 
Father, thank you for this time to be um, with my brothers and sisters here. Bless our time of worship. Pray that uh, we would focus on you, that we would sing out with all of our heart, and that Jesus Christ would be magnified. And we thank you for sending him into the world to suffer and die for us, to satisfy divine justice for us, and to give us eternal life by his work. In Jesus' name, amen.